Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Confessions of a Crappy Christian podcast. I'm your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake Guichet, and I'm so pumped to be bringing you season two of this show, packed full of more people telling incredible stories of who God is and what he's done. Today's interview is with Brittany Elliser. Brittany is a jack of all trades, CPA by day, romance book blogger by night, and a fierce advocate for organ donation and liver disease awareness. Today, she's sharing the incredible story of her son Briggs' multiple liver transplants and the goodness of God in the midst of devastating circumstances. So I wanted to let you know real quick that the doors to my group coaching open this Thursday, the 27th, and they'll only be open for three days. So my heart and intention behind launching a group coaching was to connect with the women who were showing up in my email and my DMs, asking really incredible questions and desiring growth and closeness with Christ. And because it's impossible to keep up with Instagram DMs, this group was born. And y'all, it's been such a gift. We meet once a week and I give a teaching on everything from time management to how to read your Bible to how to be brave and we have such incredible conversations and I swear I learned so much from the women in there. We are in pretty constant communication through the week, through a Facebook group. You have homework to help you implement the things we're learning. We have master classes from industry experts and it's just really good and we would love to have you join us. So for more information and to get on the wait list to know when registration opens, go to crappychristianpodcast.com slash coaching. Brittany, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Brittany is a fellow Louisiana girl and we have like the sweetest, greatest friend in common who... <laughs> Shout out Chelsea Smith connected us for this interview. And I remember, I mean, through just being in near vicinity with one another and having a friend in common, I remember a lot of uh, what what happened with you and with your family and with Briggs. But I'm really excited to kind of hear, you know, the more like intimate part of that story. So to kick us off, tell us about yourself and then tell us about your story with your son, Briggs. Sure thing. So I'm um, Brittany, as you said, and I am from central Louisiana, born and raised. I had uh, my first son in 2013. Nine months later, we found ourselves pregnant again with our second son. And um, it was a great pregnancy. There was nothing that was of concern to me or my doctors. It was, you know, a pretty typical pregnancy for the most part. Um, it ended up, though, around 36 weeks, I went into labor. And so he was born. And as soon as he was born, I held him and I looked at my husband and I said, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know why I said that. I think back to one instance where you know, when my first son, when my first son was born, I had held my finger out and he grasped my finger. And when I did that to Briggs, my second son, he didn't grasp my finger. And I don't know if that was a mom intuition or something that just alerted me to see that this is not how I think it's supposed to go or mm -hmm. something is wrong. I don't know. I couldn't put my finger on it. I still can't put my finger on it. I don't even know why I said that, honestly, but yeah, it I mean, was mom just... gut is super <laughs> legit too. It's a thing. It is. 
so I begged them to take a look at him closer. You know, I probably sounded like a, just, you know, out of mind, but I was like, something is wrong. Something is wrong. They end up taking him to the NICU and they say, they tell us that he has uh, fluid on his lung. So we're battling that. And as a second time mom, I'm still nervous and scared because none of this had happened with our first son, Brady. So it was, it was a totally new experience. Um, I actually got discharged before he did. He stayed in the NICU for a week. And then the night before we were about to get discharged from the NICU, the doctors called and said, um, we just want to let you know your son, Billy Rubin, is elevated. And at that point, I had not really had much interaction or knowledge of Billy Rubin. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of was like, yeah, okay, great. Like, from what I do know, we'll put him under the lights and everything will be great. Right. Isn't well, this, started... they usually tell you that with like <laughs> jaundice, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's, okay. That's how I knew it. So yeah. that's, that's the only way that I knew it. So I was like, yeah. No big deal. We'll we'll go under some lights and we'll be good to go. This happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, he said, well, it's 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 his direct Billy Rubin that's elevated. And I was like, okay, still, you know, kind of naive in this situation. And I, I was like, great, we'll come pick him up tomorrow. <laughs> Everything will be fine. So I start Googling. And as you know, you should not Google. <laughs> and um, so I go down the Google path and I remember exactly where I was sitting when I looked up at my husband and I said, I think this is more serious than what we think. And at that point, we still didn't know anything. We just knew that there was this elevated number. They told us the direct Billy Rubin is supposed to be a level of one and his was 1.3. So in my mom's mind and my mom too, or my mind too, I was kind of like, okay, that's not that big of a deal. But mm-hmm. now knowing what I know, it's an actual really big deal. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so just that three point three increment is it's not supposed to be there. So when mm-hmm. it when it is there, it's it's a sign of liver disease at the end of the day. Mm. And so they didn't tell me that, of course, because I'm not there in person and we go and we pick them up and they're like, just run some tests, you know, in a few weeks, it should be gone, everything should be great. It's it's all gonna be okay. Well, I texted my pediatrician and I was like, I am not a sit around and wait and all will be okay kind of person. So I need to know tomorrow what this is doing. And she, she agreed. And so we went in, did a test and it was actually elevated again. So she Mm. sent us to a specialist like that afternoon. I remember waiting in the parking lot of Baton Rouge clinic for three hours to see a specialist and Mm. ended up seeing him that day and he looked me in my eye and told me I'm 99% sure your son has a liver disease called biliary atresia and we're going to just rule everything else out and I was just completely devastated Mm. I I I don't know that as a new mom like that 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 was the best way to handle it but I also (laughs) know that it was the most direct and it really you know prepared me for what was to come because he is He's phenomenal. I mean, there's no other way to sugarcoat it when your newborn son has a liver disease. Mm-hmm. And the tricky thing with this disease is that it it takes a while to rear its head. So it's kind of a sit back and wait. So that was the first time where as much as control as I wanted to be in and as much as I wanted it to hurry up and get diagnosed, I really had to just sit back and wait a few weeks because mm-hmm. you have to be a little bit older for it to be diagnosed. But it's also a catch-22 because the longer you wait, the more damage is done. And then there's also a surgery that you can have that can kind of not fix it. And it's not a cure, but it's it's a way to kind of give you some time before transplant. And Mm -hmm. so there's a 30-day window (laughs) to have that surgery. 
And we were at day, I think, 25 at this point, and we got oh, the diagnosis. Yes. So oh, we're no. like, great, let's go. Let's do this surgery. I didn't realize what a big surgery it was until I saw him after surgery. And his surgery was called a Kasai. And so that's where they take the uh, intestines and connect it directly to the liver. Because basically, he pro- he never produced any bile ducts. So all of the bile that was sitting in his liver is just trapped which wow. causes jaundice, which causes cirrhosis, which, you know, is, it, it's the leading cause of transplants in the pediatric community. Mm. So the thing that I had to learn was that, you know, liver disease is not, um, it's, it's not, it, it, it doesn't discriminate. A baby can get it. You know, I've always associated liver disease with alcoholism or, you know, just abusing right. your body and things like that. I did nothing. My son did nothing. There's no known cause. There's no known cure. There's nothing. It's literally a luck of the straw or bad luck of the straw that, you know, you got your son has this. And it was a tough pill to swallow, but we were happy in the sense that he was able to get this surgery that we, you know, we felt like God had put everybody in place for us to get this diagnosis and get the surgery done before this 30 day window, because the chance of the surgery working within the 30 days is 90%. And then Mm. it drops down to about 20% after day 30. So we were like, yes, rah, rah, you know, like we, we did everything. It is, it is, everything is how it's supposed to be. Well, a week later we get, we take him in and I'm, I I remember telling my mom the night before, I'm like, he's yellow. He's yellow. I know he's yellow. Um, Mm. And she was like, it's just the lighting, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so we go in and he has something called cholangitis, which is an infection of mm. the liver. And basically it's a sign that the Kasai is not working. Mm. So we go from, you know, super high, high of him being born, super low, low of finding out a diagnosis, super high of having hope with this surgery and then back to square one again with, you know, the surgery is not working. Mm-hmm. We stay in Baton Rouge, I think for about a week. And then they send us to new Orleans to say that, um, you know, we're, we're sending you to go get on the transplant list basically wow. because, uh, the surgery just didn't work. And so, um, it was, it was a lot. Um, I had a, you know, a, a one-year-old at home or not even one-year-old. He was only a couple, I don't, I don't think he had made it. No, he was only like, uh, let me think. He made one. It, it gets a little fuzzy now these days, you know, five and six-year-olds. Yeah. Now, um, he, he was one and a half when all this was going on. So I had to leave my one and a half-year-old at home to go to New Orleans and pretty much move to New Orleans um, mm-hmm. for the most part. And then, you know, it, you're scared. You're, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going to happen. You're having to rely on everybody else to feed you, you know, rely on people to give you inspiration. You're trying to navigate the scary world of liver disease. You're learning labs. You're learning what all this stuff means. I didn't even know how to pronounce biliary atresia for like the first three months that we had it. So I was, you know, it was a lot at one time. Um, and thankfully, um, you know, we, we got connected with doctors in new Orleans and he got placed on the transplant list pretty quickly. Um, and then we ended up getting the call on June 24th that there was a match for him. So we went down to New Orleans. We get we get the call on June 24th. Um, we go down to New Orleans. I had worked that morning. Um, you know, I get the call. We head down there. He gets checked in. Um, we're, it's a, It's kind of a surreal experience because at the same time that, you know, 
my son is getting this second chance at life, you also know what's going on in the background and why yeah. that's happening. Yeah. So for us, it was, it's a, it's a bittersweet pill. I mean, it's, it's hard to think about for a while. It, I felt weird praying about, you know, I felt like I was praying for someone to die and that just right. feels, that feels wrong. I mean, it's yeah. like, no, that I can't do that. That's, I don't want any mom to have to go through this, but at the same time, I want my, my son's life to be saved. So right. how do I navigate that? I talked to a really good friend. Her name's Lori. Her son also has biliary atresia, but he's a little bit older than Briggs. And she told me that, um, that, and this is what helped me tremendously was that we're not praying for anyone to die. The death is going to happen either way. Mm -hmm. It's already been determined that it's going to happen. We are praying that someone has the strength in those darkest hours of their days to say yes to organ donation. Mm -hmm. Because in that moment, you're not thinking about that. You're thinking that you just, your light just dimmed, you know, like you're not, you're not whole right now. So how can you as a mom, make that difficult decision or, you know, honor even the decision if someone else, if that person who did pass away made that decision already, how do you honor that when maybe that's just not like on your forefront of your mind. So that really helped me, you know, sort of turn my thinking around and, you know, I really felt like our prayer needed to be, someone needs to say yes to organ donation and have the strength. So that helped me a lot, but yeah. um, we, uh, we get the call, we go down there, uh, we have the surgery the next morning, everything is going great. Um, we are, you know, he gets taken off of the ventilator, I'm holding him, we're feeding him. Um, and at, the way the hospital kind of life works is that they really don't want you in the PICU, they kind of want you, you know, there during the day and then they want you going home. So it's kind of weird when we right. say, oh, we went home that night, but it's, it's a thing. They, yeah. they want you to go yeah. get their sleep. So I always like to comment that. But um, so we had gone back to the little hotel that we were staying at and we got a call around 530 in the morning that we needed to come back up there because uh, they had found some clots in his portal vein. Mm-hmm. So they said it's a normal thing. It happens. You know, it's not normal in the sense that it happens to everybody, but it happens a lot. So the one hour surgery, we know how to clear the clot, you know, just come up here and say your goodbyes to, you know, for right now kind of thing. And I was like, okay, great. We'll go up there. Everything is still going great. We hand them off again. Um, we go into surgery and it, we had went into surgery probably around 9am that morning. And slowly throughout the day, we kept getting updates that surgery wasn't being, it, it wasn't finishing up. So at this point, I'm like, something's wrong. Like, you know, this is supposed to be a one hour surgery. We're on hour five. We're on hour six. We're on seven, eight, nine, ten. And finally, the doctor comes out and I see him before he gets to us. And he has this look of just absolute defeat on his face. And I'm, you know, at this point, I'm internally freaking out. I'm probably verbally freaking out. I kind of think I had an outer body experience at that point. Um, And he just said that they could not reestablish blood flow to his liver. And so um, at that point, I'm pretty sure I threw up on him. I know I threw up somewhere, but I think I just lost it because the surgery that was supposed to save his life you know, wasn't working. So where right. does that leave us? And just thinking back of all of the highs and lows that we had gone to get there, you know, it just kind of felt like I am just completely devastated and crushed. Like, I don't mm-hmm. even know how to, I don't even know what to think. I don't know how to think. We had heard about a few people needing second liver transplants right away. The way that he was explaining it though, um, 
it was more of a mechanical issue than an electrical issue. So I asked the hard question, if we do another transplant, there's a chance that it's not going to work. Right. And he Mm. said, yes. And at that point, it's like, there's nothing left for me to hope for. There's nothing left we can do. Um, So they told us that they would, and I still get teary eyed. Sorry, thinking about it, even though it's it's been close to five years later. Um, He told us that they would make him comfortable. And we needed to start thinking about, you know, places to call and things to get in order. Oh, Um, goodness. So we, yeah, it's still crazy to think about, especially thinking about what he is now today. Right. So so we go up to the room. They actually end up coming and telling us, we're going to go ahead and list him again. Um, You know, there's, we, we might be able to find a liver in time. We might not. Like, there's not really any matches that, you know, that are on deck right now. Um, we just have to pray at this point. So, um, I, I remember looking at them and telling them like, I'm going to take my baby out of here. So the, a liver is going to become available and blood flow will be abundant when it happens, you mm. know, and, and they just kind of looked at me like I was a little bit cuckoo and that's fine. Mm. Um, yep. but I didn't want to hear anything that was going to contradict those thoughts. So, um, we make them comfortable a day and a half later, we get the call that there's a liver available. So wow. we are, you know, we're back on our high, high at this point. So, and this is July 1st at this point. So June 24th, to put it back, you know, into perspective, June 24th, first transplant, July 1st is second transplant. He goes, we hand him off again. Um, we have full faith in the doctor's capabilities and we just know that this is the perfect liver that has been perfectly found for him and is going to be great. And so he goes through surgery. We, um, go back up to the PICU and I'm a numbers person. I'm a CPA during the day. And mm-hmm. I, um, I asked immediately, you know, what are his labs like? I'm super excited at this point. And just to give you a, a range value, um, a normal, liver enzymes on a normal human being or even a normal baby is a range of, you know, 10 to about 40 is the normal that you would Mm -hmm. have. A person with liver disease is usually elevated. So at this point, his enzymes are kind of in the 100s, 200s, kind of floating around there. Mm -hmm. When I asked the doctor what the range was for, you know, after surgery, um, I'll never forget. She said (gasps) 6,366. And I said, do what? <laughs> I was like, hey, ma'am, that is not like, you mean 6.366? Like, right, right, right. Not, not comma, You right? missed a Six decimal point. in there. Yeah, yeah. And she said, no, we have, um, we've never seen this before. Oh and so God. at that point, we are back down to our low, low. Um, because that this to me is just a sign that the surgery is, is not working. Um, they've also relisted him immediately at this point. Goodness. So, so this, is, this is how um, many we days? We are just, this was six days after his initial transplant. Goodness. So we go back, you know, we're, I'm still, I'm completely just, you know, devastated. But at the same time, I, I want to reiterate that throughout the whole time, I still have this just overwhelming sense of peace and comfort and knowing mm-hmm. that I'm still just going to take my son home with me out of mm-hmm. the hospital alive. Like, I don't know how or why I can say that, but that's just what I felt. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, we're going to get a, it. It's okay. There's going to be another liver. It's going to be okay. That's and, such an incredible amount of faith. <laughs> just to say. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't know that it was all me either. <laughs> like I think it was 
you know, I really did feel the support of the community, my friends. We had people praying for us around the pretty much United States at this point. And I really think that's the only way that we got through that. Because I think now, if you would tell me this today, I think I would just be on the floor and need to be carried out and have my own room. So I'm not really sure I could do that again. But Mm -hmm. um, it was just, it was crazy to think that here we are again. But I guess that's where we needed to be at that point. So we, um, we go to sleep, we come back. He ends up having a seizure um, the next day. And so they take him immediately. Um, They say he has significant brain damage. Um, You know, we're trying to figure out, is he even eligible for a transplant at this point? Because, you know, what is quality of life at this point? And Mm -hmm. how much more can this six-month-old baby go through? Um, At this point, too, a lot of just medical stuff happens that, you know, I'm not going to bore anybody with. But just things that, that were good signs, but also bad signs, things of, you know, transplant is a hard surgery. Your body has to be prepared and you have to sort of be in this weird medium of sick enough, but not too sick in order to receive a transplant. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly like watching labs, making sure all of this, you know, there's still brain activity. So as far as we're concerned, we don't care, you know, what quality of life is. I mean, we care, but there's no, no matter what happens, we're taking care of him. So Mm -hmm. we want to go through with what, you know, what we can do from a medical standpoint. Um, so we, we stay listed. Uh, I will say at that, at that time, there were things that were just crazy that happened. Um, like for instance, he was, the doctor had flown to go get a liver, um, that was a match for him and it was in Arizona and we're sitting there waiting, you know, trying to figure out when's he coming back? When's the surgery going to be? And we get word that the surgery got canceled. And at, mm. and at this point, I think we probably had about nine surgeries canceled in between mm. the second and third transplant for various reasons. And I really think they're all like God given reasons because that's the only you know explanation that we could come up with. Yeah. Because when I tell you that we looked at the map, the weather map of the United States, there was no rain in the whole country, but in Arizona, Whoa. because at that point, our prayer was open up every single door possible to the perfect liver, but close every door of it not being the perfect liver. Wow. And, you know, we had heard that the doctor was like, get me on the plane, a private plane, you know, like, I will pay for it out of pocket. I will pay a million dollars. I need to get this liver to this baby. He is going to pass away, you know, all this stuff. And it got it, it got canceled. It, it did not happen. Yeah. No. Um, we had instances where, you know, his, his enzymes were rising and then they would say, okay, we're going to, if we're going to go forward with the surgery, we're going to draw labs one more time. If they're elevated again, we're definitely going through, but if they've dropped, we're going to hold off because they were kind of trending in the right direction. Um, and it would drop by like hundreds at that next lab draw, which was only an hour from when they had drawn it the last time. So it was just things like that were happening that we really felt like every door was closing that needed to be closed. And then every door was opening that needed to be open to get us to his perfect liver. Mm-hmm. And so um, we ended up 17 days later, so J- July 17th, we got the call that there was a match for him and we had to send them off to surgery one more time. 
and um, hand him over one more time, you know, go through everything. And um, he came out of that surgery and he has been rocking and rolling ever since. It is crazy to think about um, how much of a, you know, we were, we were told pretty much to plan his funeral at one point, multiple times throughout it. Um, And we walked out of the hospital with him a few weeks later. So, um, you know, I I think about those times when the doctors looked at me like, okay, but let's talk about real life. (laughs) Let's talk about what's really going to happen. And I would just say no. And, you know, I had, we had people coming in from all over the country to pray over him, pray with us, pray for us, pray for him, pray for the donors, pray for the families that had already given, you know, their ultimate gift. Um, and it was just, it was a time where I feel like we were just extremely blessed. I'm not sure exactly why we were picked to go through that. And I don't really think I'll ever know, or I don't want to know, but I do think that there is a reason that we went through all of that. And I do That's basically why I share his story is because throughout all of that, there was such a, you know, obvious thing in my mind of, you know, this was all God's timing. This was all Mm. his plan. And even though some things were hard and it was a battle, I do think good has come from it. And I do think that there is a story there. Well, and I think even, you know, just that you you could have very easily walked through, I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot of trauma yeah. packed into two and a half weeks, you know, and yeah. I think that you could have walked out of that, even though, like, you walked out of it with a healthy son, like, I think you could have walked out of that and not Just very wanted angry. To, <laughs> angry, yeah. you could have walked out of it and not wanted to talk about it, it could have, like, been too difficult to relive, you know, there's, a, there's, mm-hmm. and the fact that the the decision that you have made on the other side of that is that you want to share your story. I know that you're a huge advocate for organ donation. Like the, the things that you have done with it is there's that quote that's like, maybe you have been given this mountain to show others that it can be moved, you know, that Mm -hmm. you had to climb a mountain where they literally told you, like you need to be planning your son's funeral and your faith and your hope and your God got you through it. So that now you're on the other side heralding this story of don't give up. Like God does miracles mm-hmm. every single day, even in 2020, you know? Yep. <laughs> yep. It is. It's, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, it's, I don't think I'll ever see another, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like a biblical mix miracle mm-hmm. just because I mean these days you don't you just don't really see someone coming mm-hmm. back from such an illness I mean he mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes he should have passed away so many times I mean mm-hmm. there were times where I looked at my husband and I was like is, is he alive like I'm mm-hmm. confused I don't know I mean like his arm had turned completely black at one point oh um I mean just all kind of stuff he was left open with a drain constantly draining fluid like liters at a of a day you know being drained just all kind of crazy medical stuff that happened that I didn't even speak to that you know it's he should not be walking around today yeah and the only explanation is a miracle in my mind so right hey do you struggle with studying the bible After participating in many women's ministry events, Michaela Van Dyke knew she had to provide the answer to the problem she was witnessing. Women were being taught they should study the Bible, 
but they weren't being taught how to study the Bible. So she created a resource to teach you just that. A journal and course that teach you how to study the Bible historically, culturally, and applicably. So if you're a pastor's wife, have an online platform, or you're just wanting to grow in your study of the Bible, visit ChasingSacred.com. So people that listen to my podcast, my podcast know that the my five-year-old had a, um, she had like a medical trauma where she had a, a really extensive uh, febrile seizure and um, as a result of that in their effort to bring her out of it, the EMS OD'd her on Ativan. And, like, put her in respiratory failure. Um, And we got to, like, experience, like, a modern-day miracle because the between the seizure and the Ativan and the, like, lack of oxygen and all that kind of stuff, like, the doctors were preparing us for, like, serious brain damage, like you were talking about. And we walked out of that hospital with a perfectly healthy child. And I know that that is not everyone's reality (laughs) and I know that that your reality isn't everyone's reality but right I when I and it's so funny talking to you about it I I I feel like you know I know that there's no point in like comparing traumas but I I struggle to talk about what happened I think more than you do (laughs) and you like (laughs) had this like you know and I mean some of that's Mm -hmm. just different people are different but yeah every time I talk about it I'm I feel a little bit like I don't have anything profound to say I'm just gonna I can (laughs) tell my story and people are so impacted just by like the solidarity of it yeah I mean it's a a lonely route to feel too I feel like as a mom you know you kind of feel like you're on this island and I think anything that can help connect Mm-hmm. other people to feeling like okay I I felt like I was on the island and look you're kind of off the island a little mm-hmm. bit like, but you, and you were on I the island the you island know <laughs> yeah like you know what the island feels like you know mm-hmm. and I think I do think I think that you're you're offering so much more than just solidarity but I think that solidarity is so precious in that like medical mm-hmm. parent world yeah um mm-hmm. And you've already, like, given us a lot of examples of this. But when you look back at that 17-day, like, season, are what were, like, are there things that you pinpoint you're like, that was God? Kind of like the rain in Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of them. Um, a, lot of them a lot of it is, I mean, just how many surgeries were canceled. When I sit back and mm-hmm. think about the number that was canceled. Um, I think it was God, you know, even putting them in place to begin with, because I think, you know, for us to get to where we are, we had to go through those nine canceled surgeries. But I also think that he canceled them for a reason, too. Um, And then I think about just the amount of people that were reached um, that came and drove or sent things and prayed for us. I mean, I just feel like that was it just had to be God working because it was this roar of, you know, like I'm shouting this, I need every single person dropping to their knees and praying. I know some people kind of shy away from it and they don't want to, you know, expose their business. But I took the stance of like, I am, I'm shouting it from the rooftops Mm -hmm. that like, Mm -hmm. this is what we need. And Mm -hmm. I I really feel like God showed up, you know, like, and I know that, you know, it could have been a different outcome. It, it, doesn't always mean that you know that is how it was it was you know not everybody's ends up 
where we ended up. But I do think that for whatever reason, you know, the prayer that we wanted was heard and definitely, you know, that was a true miracle. Yeah, absolutely. So now, you know, five years out, having a passion for like sharing your story, if you are given the opportunity to have a conversation with other medical or transplant moms, what is it important to you to communicate to them? I have exactly what I'm going to say. Um, I think it's important. Number one, give yourself grace. I think, you know, we're all human. We all, we all want things to be in our control and we want things to go a certain way. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. I think the best advice that was given to me as a new mom with a son going through all of this was that, um, he is the most connected to me out of any human in this entire world. And so he's feeling what you feel and he's sensing your, you know, scaredness. Um, he's feeding off of your energy here. Your baby is. And a doctor told me, um, and I'll never forget it. It was that, you know, the, the baby knows you better than anybody else. And so you fight and you keep fighting. And Mm. when you're too tired and when you want to give up, you let someone else fight for you because your baby is going to fight just as hard as you are. And Mm. that sometimes, you know, it's a hard fight and transplant is not an easy surgery. And sometimes things don't go the way that we want them to go. Um, And sometimes, you know, complete healing is an answered prayer. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's not, it's not what you want on this world, but at the end of the day, I had to get comfortable because of where we were in our journey, that that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. And I had to be comfortable with knowing that he was going to be completely healed sitting in the arms of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that, that was what helped me keep fighting, but also got me to where I could function on a day-to-day basis too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we talk about a lot in like my space about wanting heaven for your kids more than earth and how hard that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love yep. that you said that about sometimes complete healing is in the arms of the father. And, I, you know, I've had conversations with, you know, my mothers that have, have lost children and mm-hmm. it's it's OK to be angry. It's OK to feel mm-hmm. like no, it would, he would have, it would have been better for him here. What about the lives he could have touched? What about the impact he could have had? You know, I think that, uh, I remember one of the things that someone said to me when we were walking through all of that with Pacey was that God has really big shoulders mm-hmm. and he can take all of that. He can take our frustration. He can take our confusion and our anger and we don't have to keep those things from Mm -hmm. him you know we don't have to hide them away or or package them up really neatly before we bring them to him right and (laughs) I remember that that made such an impact for me just in my processing and Mm -hmm. and I had walked out with a healthy child right so Mm -hmm. but still was just so you know it's it's that why do good things happen to bad people? You know, yep. <laughs> I mean, why do bad things happen to good people? Yep. Like, and and so I think that, you know, what you said about you have to, you have to give yourself grace and you have to remember, yeah. you know, that all of the people around you 
are doing their best. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Doctors, nurses, you, mom, dad, grandma, everybody's doing everything they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's no, I, I struggled with like knowing and, or I guess not knowing, but trying to figure out like what was the perfect prayer that I was supposed to pray? Mm. Um, you know, like, should I be praying for complete healing? Is it going against faith if I'm asking him to heal him on earth? Is it, mm. am I, is it weird to pray that he dies so that he is healed? Right. Am I, you know, like what, am, what am I supposed to be praying? I remember, you know, just sobbing in the shower on my knees saying like, tell me what to pray and I'll pray it. Like, just yeah. please, like, I don't know what to do at this point. And I don't know that I still know what to do. Um, but I think that's the back to the grace of just saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what the perfect prayer is and I don't know there is no perfect prayer. Um, right. And, well, and that's when the, the Holy spirit is super cool because he totally yeah. <laughs> intercedes for you. And is, yeah. you know, I, there have been plenty of times where I, the only thing I can pray or pray is hi, this is a prayer. I, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, I'm thankful for, you know, a multifaceted God that yeah. is capable of understanding that, <laughs> you know, that's yep. capable of understanding, understanding, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know yep. what I'm saying. <laughs> um, Just so, make it happen. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so to close this out, we do uh, like rapid fire questions yeah. real quick. So mm-hmm. what is your Enneagram type? So sh- re-shout out to Chelsea um, <laughs> because I actually took this test and I my test is actually inconclusive. So I told her, I said, I'm just a weird person apparently. And, but it did say the most was a four or a five. And she says that she can see me as a four wing five or a five wing four. I'm not quite yeah. sure what that means, but I was like, okay, sounds good. Yeah. Super so. interesting. <laughs> you know, I I think that there's something to be said for best friends being able to type you better than you can type yourself. <laughs> Just FYI. Um, what is something that can always pull you out of a funk? Um, I read a lot of romance novels, so oh. I books are my safe haven and yeah. my um, go-to of when I'm just like, I just need to get away from the world for a minute, and then I always fall in love and I live happily ever after. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And what is the last thing you watched on TV? So, I guess we just got Disney Plus, so I guess that would be mm. Sleeping Beauty. But other than that, I, I read so much that I really don't watch TV. I can't even yeah. tell you the last time that I watched TV. So We got Disney Plus and pretty much have been watching Peter Pan on repeat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm so here for it. So here for yep. it. Yep. Um, well, Brittany, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, to share Briggs with us. And it's, it's such an incredible story. And I know that it's going to impact people and remind them of what hope and faith look like. Yeah. Tell everyone where they can find and follow you. Um, so I am on Instagram. Um, I am, it's actually, and so like I mentioned, I read a lot of books. Um, it's called Brittany's Reads. Um, so there's a mix of romance novels and then everyday life and organ donation thrown in there too. So yeah, it's me wrapped up in Instagram. Yeah, I love that. Brittany, thank you <laughs> yeah. so much. Yeah, no problem. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, 
If you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week.